I'm back again with Curtis Hewson, lead learner and co-founder of Jigsaw Learning, to talk about a recent blog post that he had put out regarding some fundamental shifts in collaborative response. So hi, Curtis. Thanks for taking time to join us. Hi, Jen. Great to be to be uh, in conversation with you. So let's let's talk about this blog post. What prompted the need to shift? Oh, I think this has been longer than just sitting down one day to write a blog. I think our understanding has been as we've worked with a number of schools and partners that understanding has grown, has deepened around what is collaborative response? What does it look like in all of these different settings? And really led to a place that the way we've been describing and looking at the model has changed over the years from where it was initially at. And, and it's a product of, of learning and learning through doing on the ground in schools and with districts. So coming to an understanding that what we've, we captured in an initial book, um, we've, we've grown and we've learned a lot um, as an educational community around this work. And it's time to start languaging just a little bit differently, some of the key key elements and foundational components. So that was the intent of the blog, was to start that conversation. And it's a fantastic conversation to start. Everyone that I've spoken with said, oh, this makes way more sense to the context that we're in. The <clears throat> first notable shift, though, has been the removal of what you've said, the model. Right. How does this impact collaborative response? So I think that was one of our key understandings. And it really started to become apparent when you'd be engaging and it was a little surreal when you'd hear a school talk about their crm um and it's a living breathing process within their schools but even the fact that we had boiled it down to an acronym it intended it it lost some meaning in in that boiling down when someone would say oh yeah we had our crm yesterday well collaborative response model is intending to be an overall approach, an overall way of organizing ourselves to be able to respond to the needs of students. Um, it's not something that you do in a, in a single sitting or in a, a single meeting. And so it really became apparent through the conversations that when we talk about collaborative response, it's a way of thinking about how we organize ourselves to attend to the needs of students in schools, how we engage, how we interact, how we take those three foundational components and weave them into the fabric of our school. The word model was lending itself more to a, it's a program, it's a, it, it, it's a model with a checklist of things to do. And we've seen it grow so deep in different educational organizations that it is a way of being. And so it made sense to remove that word model and just talk about collaborative response as, as a way of, of being in our schools. So you talk then, people talk about the, we had our CRM. They're referring to the collaborative team meetings, which is one of the they pillars are. in collaborative response, but we're recognizing it now as collaborative structures and processes. Yeah. So why, so why I, the change? Well, and this one is, even as we've been engaging in some, some introductory sessions or even over the last couple months, we still talk about the collaborative team meeting being really at the heart of all of this work. How we come together to talk about the students in those conversations 
in time should not just be about responding to the to the students or to the learners, but to also engage as learners ourselves and to be sharing classroom practices and wonderings and, and being vulnerable to say, I'm not sure what this looks like. What does it look like in your classroom? And, and being able to use that space to be innovative. But we've really understood that that's only one of the collaborative structures that we have established in our school. It's a big, it's an important one, but then there's the layering of the team meetings. And we've talked about that layering over the last couple of years, where there's that next layer of whether it's an inclusive team meeting, whether it's an intervention team, whether it's a student services team. We've, in, in other districts, it's called their programming team. The understanding that that team is meeting more frequently and they're narrowing in on the needs of some more um, intensive student needs that are, are surfacing so that those conversations do not need to be part of the collaborative team meeting conversation. And then there's a third layer that happens around a case consult when we need to bring in external partners, parents and guardians, maybe the student themselves, and really do a deep dive by that each one of those layers has a different purpose in responding to the needs of students. And then also understanding that there's times when a team needs to walk away from the collaborative team meeting and now engage in some collaborative work as a result of that conversation. So we see schools that utilize that cycle of we're meeting for collaborative planning, collaborative planning, collaborative planning. Then we have a collaborative team meeting. From that, we again enter back into that cycle. And it's a cycle that we described right off the start. But when we define that essential or that foundational component only as collaborative team meetings, it doesn't value the other layers that begin to surface and evolve around collaboration in the school. Again, becoming heavily networked that there's a myriad of collaborative structures and processes in which the collaborative team meeting is essential, but not the only way that we come together. In some of the video samples that I've seen around the collaborative team meeting, there's been a real shift in what students can we talk about that we can impact in the classroom and what students do we need to refer to one of those other meetings now? Oh, and it's been the absolute game changer in this work. It's something I wish we would have understood um, even when we wrote the first book of the collaborative team meeting is actually not the space where we're dealing with specific individualized student needs. It's where we're through the student conversation, identifying some more universal needs, putting other students to that same need, discussing, so what could we do? And now the conversation's all about classroom practice. It's in the collaborative team meeting. It's not which student should we send out for this? Which student um, do we need to get this additional assessment? There, there can still be a, a somewhat of a space in that agenda for that conversation, but the, the primary conversation is what adjustments are we making in our classrooms to help attend to some of the needs that come? It's been an absolute game changer in the way people are structuring the collaborative team meetings. And I'm glad you mentioned the samples. There's a number of samples now on the website that show what that looks like in practice. And so this shift in this further explanation and this deeper focus on, yes, we bring up a student at a meeting, but we focus in on an issue. How do you yes. find that enhancing the, the teacher practice in your experience out in schools? Yeah, so it, it does a number of things. First off, 
it allows where I, I may be involved in the conversation because I'm a, a very good colleague, um, but I may not have as much of a vested interest that we're talking about a student that my colleague is unsure what to do, is struggling with. We're all offering suggestions that could really be overwhelming. It could lead to some defensiveness for, for that individual of, well, I've already tried that, or duh, of, of course I've thought of that already. What this does is it creates that space where I can say, here's a student, and if there's one thing that I could help impact right now, it's this. Then we can say, anyone else have a student that is also struggling with that? And now each one of us can become invested in that conversation. Then when we say, so what should we do? We can brainstorm. We can unlock our toolboxes. We can engage in what if conversations of that's a great idea. What if we tried this and someone else can jump in? Ooh, ooh, but what if we, and, and we use that space to come up with really innovative, potentially ideas or suggestions. And then we go back to, so what's one thing you're going to try? What's one thing you're going to try? What's one thing I'll try with the student I was, that I had brought forth around this key, key need. So again, it's all actionable, but the idea is we're not only responding to the needs of students in that space, but that I'm walking out of that meeting with two, three, four ideas that I may not have come up with on my own without this, this space or this structure. Again, it's, I've, we see teachers engaging through that conversation in a much different way and in a way about I've come to learn and to offer expertise at the same time. It's, it's, it's actually, it's a beautiful thing to see when it's, it's happening in those team meetings. Oh, it absolutely is. And I think that that notion of sharing ideas has shifted the thinking around. It's not always about the intervention. It's not always about changing the program. And so there's been a shift now from the pyramid of interventions to the continuum of supports. Yeah. So tell us a little yeah. bit more about the intention behind that. Well, and even in the initial writing of the book, it talks about that there's a difference between interventions, strategies, and accommodations, but we still referred to it as a pyramid of interventions. It made sense at the time. It was consistent with some of the other languaging that was happening um, in education around professional learning communities, response to intervention. Um, but we've really understood as schools are building out their their placemats and their resources around initially that pyramid of interventions, understanding that there's a lot of things that we can do for students that are more than just interventions. Again, there's strategies, there's accommodations, there's a number of ways we can support. And then that understanding that when it becomes a continuum, that's still tiered in it, but that we are not tiering children we are tiering the supports and the understanding that for this individual student, they may need tier four level supports right now to be successful, but let's not call them a tier four kid. That's, that's not the intent of that continuum of supports. It really helps with the idea that we are adding, adding layers of support. I've heard Shelley Moore speak of this idea of that layered cake idea of support in our classroom. We're adding layers onto this that's flexible, that's adjusting, that we don't have to wait for a child to fail in order to move up to the next tier. 
It's in our conversations, our discussion, do we need to look at the next tiers of supports to add on? And the idea that it's a, a flexible, fluid continuum that, that we're using to inform our, our next steps uh, for students. And so when we talk about that continuum, you mentioned the notion of tier four. So mm -hmm. people that are familiar with RTI look at three tiers, mm -hmm. but the, the collaborative response looks at four tiers. So for those that aren't familiar, can you elaborate a little on that? Yeah. So the idea is not to add another tier on top. Um, it's to be able to say at the universal level, let's divide that into two tiers. Let's say, what are the non-negotiables at tier one that we should see in every classroom's instruction? So we've, we've uh, engaged with a number of districts that have done this district-wide to say, you know, this is our quality learning environment or our optimal learning environment, what we expect to see in every classroom as, um, as agreed upon, co-created uh, within a school. It may be that in our literacy continuum, here's eight non-negotiable things that we will see in everyone's classroom. Everyone's going to do it slightly different. So for instance, it may be that one of them is that there's targeted small group um, reading instruction. So I may do that in a different way than you do that. Um, we may approach that through different ways from the learning, from the training, through the experiences that we have, but it becomes a non-negotiable that we agree will be in place. That becomes tier one. And what that does then is puts all of the differentiated strategies, accommodations, all into tier two to say, I'm doing, we all agree that we will have these foundational components in our classrooms um, and as part of our instruction. But when there's still a student that's struggling, now I can look at tier two to say, well, what else could I try in the classroom? But the idea that tier one and two is all classroom based and that we never look outside that classroom until we feel that we've adequately um, exhausted or... <laughs> I'm doing a number of things, not only in my solid tier one instruction, but I've integrated a number of things from our tier two menu of ideas and, and things, and we're still not seeing success. Now we can look um, beyond the classroom to some of our tier three or school-based supports where someone other than the classroom teacher is going to be responsible. So the other thing that's been beautiful in this idea of tiering the supports, not the students, is that we can have a student with significant needs who has an IPP in place uh, for them. But within that document, we identify a number of things that are in place for success in the classroom. That's still a student that can have success with tier two level supports, where in our older thinking, it would be, well, that's a tier four student. And, and they might be a tier four student for the rest of their, their educational careers. It, it takes that languaging out and it says, nope, that student's name is Ben. And right now, this is the level of support that he needs. Or another student who has gone through uh, some trauma, let's say, where we need to, to jump to tier four level supports right now because that's what they need. Fluid, because they don't need to stay in a particular tier over the course of a school right. year. Absolutely. And that's where the data and evidence can help us to say, well, that student is a red student or a green or whatever you want to use as that criteria. Um, but now here's the level of supports that they need that we as a 
professional team determine on, on a student by student consideration. And so you mentioned data and evidence. That's a shift from the foundation that used to be assessments. Right. And so again, I think the intention is very similar, but when the languaging was assessments, um, we were finding some schools getting stuck with the idea of the tests and what are the assessments that we're using to inform. But we understand that by looking at data and evidence, data is how do we use the results from those assessments to help point towards some trends, to help identify, flag students to inform. But then we're also looking at other evidence, that whole idea of triangulation, that the assessment may say this, but my observations have contributed this. There's, there's a number of ways that we can gather evidence around what a student needs or also evidence around have what we put in place working or do we need to adjust or shift. I think data and evidence is a better way of describing that foundational component than just merely assessments. Assessments are a part of that for sure, but there's more than just assessments that can inform the, the critical question of, so what do we do? It allows for professional judgment to come into play. And for that, for that question of, okay, the test said this, but when I talk to them, this is what happens. There's a conflict in what's presented. What can right. we do now? And, and that was always the intent and always the, what was in, in the understanding around assessments, but the languaging of it didn't lend itself to that. So that simple shift, I think, really opens up the understanding that, yeah, we need data and evidence to inform our conversations, absolutely. But there's a number of ways we can go about gathering that. So these shifts that have come to the fundamental pillars of collaborative response have both expanded the understanding and honed in to more deeply define what we mean by those pillars. Absolutely. And so now that you've reflected on the learning that you've had from engaging with partners and being out with schools and being engaged in those meetings with those teachers, mm -hmm. what's next for collaborative response? I think it's just continuing to learn, Jen. I think that we've understood that this is a learning endeavor. And when schools engage in collaborative response, you never reach a point of, well, we've we've done collaborative response and now we're going to move to our next initiative. It becomes a way that we reorganize how we respond within our school and how we collaborate to maximize what we can do collectively for kids. So when you ask what's next, uh, my answer is, I, I don't know, because we'll, we'll learn through this. We'll see how schools continue to engage. And, and that's the exciting part around the work is, we, we see and hear success from all sorts of different contexts, whether it's at a district, whether it's a large high school, whether it's a small K to 12, whether it's a group of Hutterite um, colony teachers coming together. Um, there's so much learning to be done and I'm constantly amazed every time we go in to a school or engage with others that are sharing and excited about what they're doing and you see new adaptations and new insertions of ideas where you go that's brilliant for for instance we've recently seen a, a school that was incorporating 
some of Simon's Breakspear's work around learning sprints and being able to, we have our collaborative team meeting, we identify key issues, we respond to students, but then that informs what we're going to develop as a learning sprint over the next three to four weeks that we'll go and investigate, come back with what have we learned, how is our practice adjusted, and then engage in that cycle. Again, it's it's been fascinating to see how people have interwoven the work that they're doing, but using collaborative response as that fundamental understanding of how they organize for, organize themselves for kids. And so you mentioned the original book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard rumors that there might be a new version. Yeah, so we've been working on that um, to be able to take, again, the fundamental understandings that came from that. But you look back at something four years later and go, oh, sh-. the second it was printed, there was new examples, there was new learning to go in. I go back and read the first chapter and go, man, is the tone ever harsh in this? This was never the intention, um, but it doesn't come through in the tone. So, yes, we are are rewriting that introductory understanding um, for it and hope that uh, we can be able to introduce that to to people shortly. Um, and, and again, not sure whether it's a second edition, whether it's a, a another another title, um, but there, there's so much that's been learned from that first book that we look at the, the first book of envisioning a collaborative response model and realize it doesn't capture now what what schools and districts know and do in relation to collaborative response in a number of the ways that we've talked about here. A lot of ahas that have come through through collective learning that's bigger than any small group or or myself or Lorna as writers of that book. It's being seen through several sets of eyes and through really innovative practice. And you speak of the learning and the shifts and the changes. Uh, One of the platforms in which collaborative response has grown is through the conference, which Mm -hmm. is shifting to a retreat model this year. Absolutely. (laughs) And I know that that's going to be upcoming very shortly. So for those that are attending that event, what can they anticipate? We'll run on April 30th, uh, two symposiums. One will be an introduction to collaborative response, which will reflect a lot of the things that we've talked about. Another will be going deeper for schools that have engaged in this work for a while. What are some ways to to take the next steps or go deeper in that? There'll be kind of the pre-retreat symposium days as standalone workshops, but then the actual retreat itself on the Friday and Saturday is being structured in a way so that schools come in and from the start of the retreat, begin building a plan for what are their next steps, whether it's beginning implementation or deepening uh, the work. The idea is by the end of the retreat, walk away with a solid plan on where they go next and develop the plan through the retreat through an innovative learning design where I could be attending a session to hear from another school what this has looked like. I could be booking to sit down with a, a Jigsaw Learning team member on an individual consultation for our team. I could be joining a table conversation where we're talking about what are some ways schools have developed their continuum of supports. I could be booking time for just my team to sit and plan together. There may be a possibility that I want to take a look and investigate the software with someone 
it's going to be a plan your own learning, but leave with a, a next steps plan. I, I think the idea of a retreat is quite fitting uh, for what's, what's intended. We're very, very excited. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity to explore these fundamental shifts. And to realize that we come together all as learners and as experts, and that we have a lot to learn from, from each other in that space. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. Thank Absolutely. you for your time today. Okay. Thanks so much, Jen. All the best.